Good morning. Welcome back. If you have been gone on, sp on spring break, on fall break, we're so excited to be here this morning, bright and loud. Good morning. My name is Jesse. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm the worship director here. You may recognize me if you've been here a couple times as somebody who sings and, and jumps up and down in joy sometimes when I'm singing, but I am so excited to get to speak to you. Pastor Joe, coming back from Africa, just gear up, because I can only imagine that God has just been pouring out stuff on him. And if you've been coming here for a minute, you know that when Pastor Joe's been off the stage for a couple weeks, it's like it builds up, right? And he's just got a, it's a fire hydrant. It just unloads. So bring your notepads, be ready to take notes, because I'm sure that God has given him so much insight and wisdom and words while he's been in Zimbabwe. And the kids team is already preparing to go a little bit long. But this is, this is the week I get to do one more. And I love that our church gets to go do something like this, that it's a good reminder. I so often forget that the church is not just us or the churches in our town or the churches in Kentucky or even our nation, but we are a global church and body of Christ and this opportunity that the vineyard just encourages churches to connect with one another and to be encouragement and be supportive. I love that. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at today is the idea of being a team. Now, if you haven't been here, we, you may have noticed from the bumper, we are in the middle of the Racing in the Storm series. We've been getting some really great wisdom from that. Last week, if you didn't have a chance to listen, I encourage you to go back. Jack, even though he is a Michigan fan, got some great wisdom. <laughs> I cheer for Penn State when I'm not cheering for UK, and so I humbly love him because it's easy to love when your team wins, right? But no, he had some really, really awesome wisdom about anxiety and racing and anxiety because I don't know if you're like me, but I kind of assumed that I would just get smarter and smarter and better and better and, and then I would die. And that is not how life works at all. Now, like as I get older and wiser, we recognize that it's not a question of if a storm is going to come, but when a storm comes. So we want to have this wisdom because we don't want to be caught in a storm of life and then suddenly not know what to do or how to get through it. And I love that we are learning that here and that's what we're working on today. So as we do this and as we look at this, I want to talk about team racing. Now I'm happy to confess, I know almost nothing about NASCAR. Okay, it puts me to sleep. I just, you know, like it's just like a sound machine, right? And if I really wanted to watch something go in circles and then crash and growl, I can just give one bone to two dogs. <laughs> There's two dogs at my house. They love to play. All I've got to do is toss a bone over there. There's just as many crashes. There's just as much growling. There's just as much running around in circles. It's, it's basically NASCAR, right? <laughs> except without the team. So that's what we're going to talk about. And on, when you look at this, when I was studying, it said, the, one of the articles, that a team of a race car driver, the pit crew, is what makes the difference between a championship and a Sunday drive. 
And we also see that in, when drivers are working together, when drivers are working together, they can protect one another, they can slingshot one another, they can work together to bring victory to the team. So let's look at an awesome example of teamwork in the Bible, and we're going to see what we can grab from it for in our own lives today. Now, if you guys have Bibles, we're going to open up to Judges. If you have a smartphone, you can pull it up on that app. I highly encourage you to take notes because I just firmly believe that when you come in here, no matter who is speaking on this stage, the Holy Spirit has something to pull out of the message just for you. You may walk out of here and feel like you heard something totally different from the person beside you, but that's because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. And we come in here not just to worship, but to hear what God has to say to us through the Word. So we want to write that down because we want to be able to go back and remember what God is teaching us and what God has taught us in the past. So if you are taking notes, get ready, buckle up. We are going to have a lot of fun. I love studying the Bible, and we are going to do that in Judges 4 today. Now let me set it up for you. Before Judges comes the book of Joshua. Now Joshua is the guy who after Moses died, led the people of Israel into the promised land and then helped them start taking over the land that God had given them. Okay? So then when he dies, we don't see another leader necessarily raised up. Okay? He encourages them to keep following God, but he doesn't like name somebody else leader. Actually, what we see in Judges chapter 2 is after the entire generation who knew God and followed God with Joshua passed away, it says another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That is, that is very alarming to me because I want to be somebody who passes on a love for God and, and then a relationship with God and a legacy for God. And this is where we see already a people who God has told them over and over and over again, tell your children what I commanded you. Write it on your forehead. Write it on your house. Write it on your heart. But remember what I did for you, children of Israel. Tell the story. Pass it on. And after one generation, the generation who actually laid eyes on everything passes away, they knew neither the Lord or what he'd done. We have to be a people who'd say what God did. We cannot assume that our silent lives are necessarily enough. We run the danger of just looking like super nice people. We have to tell people that it's Jesus, not us. And that's our reminder right there. But after this, Joshua dies, and we see Israel turn away from the Lord God and begin to follow the idols of the people around them. It's kind of like when I have my kids with a babysitter. If the babysitter were to leave, chaos would ensue, and my house would be torn down. Where there is a lack of leadership, there is no structure and no discipline, and everybody loses their mind, and apparently we start following idols. So that's what Israel is, has done. They, then they repent, they turn back to follow God because he allows their enemies to come and take over and oppress them. He gives them over to the consequences of their actions. Because listen, God gave us all free will. It is both the best gift and has allowed the greatest evil in the world, but he will not force himself on us. He will, however, allow the consequences of our actions. Can he turn it all back to his good? Yes. 
Can we repent at a drop of a hat and he come in and save us? That's exactly what we see happen over and over again. Every time Israel realizes what they've done, repents, asks for forgiveness, and turns back to God, he swoops in and provides what's called a judge to save them. And then we have judge after judge after judge. But then as soon as the judge dies, the babysitter is gone, people kind of lose their mind and forget what they're supposed to be doing. And then they get oppressed again, and then they cry out to God again, and then he comes in and saves them. So now we find ourselves in verse 4 meeting a female judge, the only female judge, named Deborah. Now I also want to point out that Deborah is a prophetess. She is the only judge who is noted to be a prophet, prophetess of the Lord, which means not only did she step up and she ruled Israel, but she also heard from God and spoke for God. So it's kind of like having a pastor king over Israel at this time. She is awesome, is the point. But let's start in verse 6. She, Deborah, sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree of Zenanim near Kadesh. This seems like a random verse that doesn't belong, but it's actually very important. So what's happened here is you have the king of Canaan, Jabin, who is oppressing Israel through his commander, Sisera. Israel's crying out. Deborah gets a word from the Lord. She passes it on to Barak. He says, please hold my hand and help me. She says, yes, I will. And now we're march, march, marching to go gather our troops. Okay? And then, all of a sudden, we have this verse that just says, also, there was this guy who's kind of an in-law of the Israelites, and he moved away and parked over by this tent. Which seems silly, but it actually matters. Because what he's done is separated himself from Team Israel. Team Canaan is killing Team Israel. Heber wants out of it. He doesn't want to be part of it. He wants to be Switzerland. So just remember that. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harash Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance... The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. One more pause. When you're studying the Bible, this stuff matters. Did God move before Barak moved? You can answer out loud. No. 
Okay, all together. Did God move before Barak moved? No. no, he didn't. And we see this over and over in Scripture. God invites us to take an act, a step of obedience, and then he comes in and saves the day. Because we are human. And if the day was saved when we do the work, we will take the credit because we are broken humans and we're going to get deluded and think that we deserve the glory. But it's this obedience, it's this faith that we're asking God to grow in us and it sometimes requires one small step of bravery. It's when Abraham agrees to take his son up a mountain and doesn't understand. It's when the children of Israel are looking at the Jordan River that cannot be moved through, and it's not until the priests put their feet in the water that God moves all the water, just like he did with the Red Sea. God is inviting you to take one small step so that he can grow your faith and show you how much he loves you and how much he wants to take care of you. But we have to do it his way or else we wouldn't understand where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord. So that was for free. That's not really a part of the story. Okay, back to it. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Haggim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. I forgot to tell you, this is a PG-13 story. <laughs> I hope that you have made use of our amazing Vineyard Kids area, in case you didn't want to explain this later. But the Bible is not G. So here we have a woman who has put a tent peg, not just in a guy's head, but through it into the ground. And he died. No duh. <laughs> just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. This is like the craziest story ever. But here's the thing. I am a pastor's daughter. I have been sitting in church so not like this one since I was very small. And I was not allowed to go to a super cool kids church we went to Sunday school, and then I was blessed to sit under my father's teaching all the days of my life, and I was not allowed to bring a book or a phone or a toy. So when you're a pastor's kid and you hear Bible stories all the time, all the time, sometimes you get bored and you go looking through the scripture for interesting stories. So I found one. <laughs> 
I've always loved this story, and I tried very hard to convince my husband to name one of our daughters JL. He did not go for it. Not only is it not the easiest name to say quickly, but also she's a murderous spy. Maybe he didn't want our children to be, you know, starting behind that legacy. But I love what we see here. Okay, what we see here is a team that is working, right? This team works together for the Lord and they get their victory. You have Deborah, who is the mouthpiece of God and the encourager. You have Barak, who is the muscle. And you have Jael, who is the tip of the literal spear. Okay, she's the one bringing the hammer down and making things happen. But number one, if you're taking notes, I want us to focus. It seems simple, but here it is. We have to pick a team and work together. We cannot lone ranger our way through life. We cannot hop from friend group to friend group, from religion to religion, from church to church. We have to commit. We have to pick a team. JL picked a team, and it was a team nobody expected. Because her husband, who apparently is wealthy enough to have gotten an alliance with a king of Canaan, that's not a small thing. This is not a husband and wife team in a pup tent over under a tree. For Sisera to recognize her and go into her tent, which he should never have been able or thought about going into a woman's tent, for her husband to have made an alliance with a very evil king who was oppressing kind of their family. Heber is an, an in-law to Moses. Okay, so it's kind of like if you're going to school and you see like a friend of a friend or a relation of a relation being bullied by a really, really bad bully and you're like, Listen, but we're not blood though, so I'm just going to remove myself from this situation. I'm going to stay over here, and good luck, and I hope it works out for you. I'm going to make a deal with the bully so that I don't have a problem. That's what this guy has done, and everybody assumes that his wife would go with him, but there's something about JL that made her choose God's people. Maybe she didn't want to move. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. We just know that when she was faced with a personal choice, she chose the right team. And she was the one God used to bring the victory. We need to know who we're playing with. God made us to need each other. And everything I see in our culture now tells me that the enemy is doing everything he can to come against that. The enemy wants us isolated and alone because together, encouraging one another, growing together, we can withstand the enemy. But Satan offers us the illusion of intimacy and gives us the imprisonment of isolation. You think you have 1,284 friends because your best friend from calculus that you copied notes on 15 years ago liked and commented on the article that you posted this week. But that's not who you're going to call when you get a flat tire at 2 in the morning. That's not really community. That's the illusion of intimacy that we see on social media. All Satan wants to do is take the gifts of God and twist them just a little bit so that we think we've gotten the gift, but in actuality, he is separating us from the will of God, from the blessing of God, from the protection of God. It's kind of like this saying I've always heard about sex. The devil will do anything he can to get you into bed before you're married and keep you out of bed after you're married. Can you track that? Because Satan knows that physical intimacy unites our souls. 
it should never be taken lightly. But he also knows that it is a unifying and healing agent in our marriages. In marriage, it makes us stronger. So Satan will do anything he can to subvert that. We cannot do this alone because then we follow Satan and we make bad choices. He isolates us so that we believe the lies. We have to pick a team. Joshua called his people before he died in Joshua 24 and said, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Pick Jesus. Pick a church. Pick a small group. Pick a community. Pick a circle of friends, but pick a team. The enemy can't get you when you have wisdom surrounding you, when you have people that are going to love you. You need people that you can call and people that can call you out. If you are only surrounding yourselves with people who are patting you on the back, that's not real community. That's not what God has for us. We are, we are worth more than that. We are worth more than trying to stay in comfort. We're called to be brave and to follow God, and we do it together. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship from the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Number two, we have to stay in our lane. So that seems kind of confusing, but track with me. If we're going with what Pastor Joe taught us, which is that we all have a role in the kingdom, which we know from Scripture, we know that God has given each of us our own life, our own race, and the win is when we live that life and surrender to Him in obedience, and we see the kingdom of heaven come to earth. When we go out and we make disciples of all nations, when we go and love people more than we love ourselves, when we love God more than we love comfort and what we want, that is the win that we're talking about. And the team is the family of God. So we have to stay in our lane to successfully work together. In racing, when a car goes down into the pit, the pit crew like races out and in like 2.5 seconds, they've got all the lug nuts off and the tire on and all the lug nuts back on and race the car back out. And that's how you win a championship, right? But if you have lug nut guy march out there one day and he decides he doesn't want to be lug nut guy, he wants to be tire guy. He wants to go pick up the tire and be the guy that puts the tire on or maybe tire guy sick of being tire guy. He wants to be screwdriver guy, and he wants to go and do all the little things. What happens? The team loses. If we don't stay in our lane and follow what God has given us to do, the team loses. Everyone has a job, and when everyone does their job, the team wins. It's the same in the kingdom of God. 
When we do what God has given us to do, the team wins. Your role is not my role. Your opportunities to share the gospel are not my opportunities. Your ministry calling is not my ministry calling. And if I look at you and decide that yours looks better than mine and I should just try to do yours even though I'm not you, it's a detriment to both of us. I lose and the team doesn't do as well as we could have. Deborah's job was to speak the truth and encourage Barack. Barack's job was to obey and fight the battle. JL's job was to seize an opportunity and finish the guy off. But if Deborah had decided that she wanted to get the glory, it all could have fallen apart because she wasn't anywhere near where Cicero was. And then it wouldn't have worked. The team all has to play their roles. There's nothing that says in this passage that Deborah didn't think she was the one that was going to get the glory. I always read this and thought when she told Barack, like, hey, fine, I'll go with you, but a woman's going to get the glory. I'm going to hold your hand and march with 10,000 sweaty horde of men up this mountain and all over the desert, that she wouldn't be the one that got the glory. But she's not. JL gets it. And she doesn't have a problem with that. She rocks her role. She stays in her lane. Even when someone else has a need, she does it. She comes alongside. We get to do that. What has God given me to do that I can be the best me? And when I see a need or someone is asking for help, absolutely. Not even a moment's hesitation. Let me come alongside you. Let me hold your hand. You're a little bit scared about what God's called you to do. Let me come encourage you. That's what she's doing in teamwork. Romans 12, 4 through 8 says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Comparison is not just the thief of joy. It's the thief of victory. If I spend my time wishing that I looked a certain way, had a certain job, was at a different station of life, was a better cook, was the kind of person who would never wash her husband's cast iron skillet, well, then I'm just parked over here feeling sorry for myself because I did that. And God bless him, he still loves me. Jesse just had a lot to learn when I first got married. But I have other gifts. TJ can cook. Jesse's really good at cleaning. We make a great partnership. But if I sit around and just beat myself up or I'm sad because I don't look like her or parent like that or impatient like that person or have gone far along in my X, Y, Z, then what I've done is the storm has come and I've just kind of pulled over and parked. And now I'm not even in the race anymore isolation. Comparison isolates. It steals your joy. It steals your victory. We cannot compare. We have to go to number three. We have to celebrate. We have to celebrate our team. 
We get to pick a team. We get to work together as a team. But then it's important that we celebrate our team. I heard somebody say at a football practice I was at like a couple weeks ago that the biggest reasons that people leave a job is lack of recognition. Now, I have no data to back that up, but it sounds very good. And it is a, there's some truth to that. There's some truth to the fact that we all want to be recognized. We want somebody to say, hey, I see you. I see that you got up and came in here. I see that you paid for the person's coffee behind you at the drive-thru. I see that you said no when the temptation was to say yes. I see that you helped clean the bathrooms. I see that you helped in the kids' area. Maybe those people aren't wanting to be on a stage or be rewarded, but It matters that we notice each other and encourage each other and celebrate each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Judges 4 is the story of Deborah Barak and Jael's teamwork, but it's followed in chapter 5 by a song that it's said Deborah helped write, if didn't write all by herself. And in it, in verse 24 through like verse 26 or 7, she celebrates J.L. Even though J.L. is the woman who is getting the credit for this great victory, she is the one that put an end to the oppressor of Israel. Deborah is not getting jealous. Deborah is not wishing that she was more than just a mouthpiece and an encourager. She's not even just patting Jael on the back. She is standing up and telling the story to generations so that they will know what Jael did. That Jael was in a hard spot and could have done nothing, but when she saw the oppression of people, she stood up and did the right thing. She stood up and joined God's team. We have to be a people who know our calling, who pursue it, help when we can, and celebrate our team. These people have come up to give prayer. And I know from personal experience that it is really, really easy to walk in here, to sit, to worship, to hear, to make notes, to enjoy, to want to go forward for prayer, but not. And will you be fine if you don't get prayer? Maybe, probably, depends on your situation. But this is teamwork. This is where we get to love each other. You walked in here with things that nobody knows you're dealing with. Some of you are walking in with diagnosis. Some of you are walking in with life crisis. Some of you are walking in and just needing to take a small step of faith not sure you're feeling bold enough to do it. These people are here to pray for you. So as we stand up, what is that thing we can pray for you about? Is there a healing? As you listen to this, where do you find yourself in this story? Some of us come in and we haven't picked a team. Maybe we picked Jesus a long time ago, but life just got really busy. And it got really full. And we've been trying to just like live for our happiness and do everything all at once. And it's just not working. Some of us find ourselves in a storm that no one knows about. 
or a storm that we never saw coming and we just find ourselves parked in the rain and in the storm and we don't know what to do because we haven't let anybody in. Isolation will kill you and community with God will save you. Let us pray for you. Let us invite God's healing in your life. Maybe you just need a prayer for boldness. We're here to hold each other's hands. God's inviting you. God wants to save the day, but he also wants to show you how much he loves you and how big he is as you take one small step of faith. Come, let us pray for you.